Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big, dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 47, The Park, recorded February 11th, 2023. Boy, it's almost on. Thanks for joining me today. <laughs> a continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E, and you can check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Centipede, and our outro is Super Groovy. Corrections, I was mistaken about the Knives Out sequel. Uh, I think it's called Glass Onion. I was excited to see it and my wife and I had a like a date night opportunity and I thought we could go to the theater and watch it and it sounded like fun, but whoops, <laughs> my mistake. You can't go see it because it's on Netflix and it seems like the singular streaming service we do not have, so we need to see that. It turns out that if you sneeze too hard, you can fracture a rib. And I know that when I throw out my back, sneezing is far less welcome around here, so I believe that's probably true. And finally, I lost a dollar in a bet when someone told me an almond is actually a member of the peach family. Dinosaur news! Alright, our first paper looks to understand with some further depth what the heck Dr. Grant is talking about with the amphibian visual cortex. So I dug up a paper published in the Proceedings of the IRE, Volume 47, issue number 11 from November 1959, What the Frog's Eye Tells the Frog's Brain. The IRE may be the Institute for Radio Engineers publication that ran from 1912 to 1963 and has since become the IEEE, which is the Institute for Electrical and Electronic Engineers. What that has to do with a frog's vision is more advanced than I'll pretend to understand, but it could be about, like, I don't know, signals being delivered. Maybe that's where it goes. Uh, this paper analyzed the activity of single fibers in the optic nerve of a frog to find out what sort of stimulus causes the largest activity in one nerve fiber, and then what is the exciting aspect of that stimulus, such that variations in everything else cause little change in the response. The assumption for frogs, according to the paper, quote, has always been that the eye mainly senses light, whose local distribution transmitted to the brain is copied by a mosaic of impulses. They assumed that the nervous apparatus in the frog's eye was devoted to detecting certain patterns of light and their changes, corresponding to particular relations in the visible world. To analyze their assumption, they presented a frog with a wide range of visible stimuli, not only spots of light, but things a frog would be disposed to eat, other things from which it would flee, sundry geometrical figures, stationary, and moving about, etc. Lots of different things. Their conclusions say, the operations of a frog's eye have, quote, much more the flavor of perception than a sensation if that distinction has any meaning now. That is to say that the language in which they are best described is the language of complex abstractions from the visual image. We have been tempted, for example, to call the convexity detectors bug perceivers. Such a fiber responds best when a dark object, smaller than a receptive field, enters the field, stops, and moves about intermittently thereafter. The response is not affected if the light changes or if the background, say a picture of grass and flowers, for example, is moving and is not there if only the background moving or still is in the field. Could one better describe a system for detecting an accessible bug, is what they say. So the amphibian visual cortex, as described by Grant, mimics the findings of this old paper that visually, one using this visual system, here it's tyrannosaurs and myosaurs, 
and in the paper it's frogs, responds best when a dark object smaller than a receptive field enters the field, stops, and moves about intermittently thereafter. Grant weaponizes his interpretation to jam a dinosaur's visual cortex by disrupting their visual interpretations. Thus, while he's a dark object smaller than the receptive field that's entered the field and stopped, he resists moving about intermittently thereafter, and according to science, becomes invisible. Also in this chapter, we get hadrosaurs eating, and I've got a paper that's all about that, hadrosauroid jaw mechanics and the functional significance of the predentary bone. Quote, the predentary is a single bone found in the lower jaw complex of all ornithischian dinosaurs. Located rostral to the paired dentary bones of the mandible, it occludes with the premaxilla, or apomorphically with the rostral bone in ceratopsians. End quote. <laughs> Recall our news last week was about the occluding teeth of ceratopsians, right? Quote, although it is universally accepted that the predentary was used in nipping vegetation, its absence in all other fossil and extant vertebrate herbivores, including sauropod morphs, indicates that the functional significance of this element is not well understood. So this paper looked into it. The paper describes all the elements of a hadrosauroid's jaws and teeth, and then suggests, based on their findings, a duckbill would have eaten as follows. Step one, they would initially shear vegetation with palinal jaw movements, which are those from a backward motion, rather than lateral movements. Step two, followed by medial rotation of the dentaries against the maxillae, which is a rotation toward the median plane. So imagine the top of the jaw, the maxillae, and bottom of the jaw where the teeth are, the dentary, meeting at a median plane, that is a kind of a fancy way to describe chewing up and down. This would maneuver vegetation into the oral cavity independently on both sides. So what does that mean? It means it snipped vegetation, crunched it in a battery of teeth. If you're unfamiliar, hadrosaur's jaws were jammed from side to side with wide teeth. Or more specifically, the chewing surface of a hadrosaur's teeth filled its lower jaw, which would pulverize vegetation. In fact, I'll have to ask the next paleontologist where on earth a hadrosaur's tongue might go. Uh, it'd be ground in a hamburger in there, maybe. In any case, specifically, what's not described in this academically reviewed paper on the wear and tear of hadrosaur teeth is a lateral chewing movement, which is more akin to what you'd expect a cow to do. Cattle are known to rotate and rub their jaws in, in lateral and almost even round movements, grinding tough plant matter together, and hadrosaur's jaws are scientifically said to not do that. But that's not what Crichton says. His Myasaura chew, quote, exactly like a cow in this chapter, and we'll get there soon. All right, with the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. All right, let me introduce you today to my special guest. He's a paleontologist, a professor, and an award-winning Irish poet from Belfast, but he lives in Edmonton. It's Gavin Bradley. Welcome to the show, Gavin. How are you doing? Hello. Ah, not too bad. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're here. So Gavin and I met one day when I was following a rainbow for its pot of gold, uh, when I was instead <laughs> caught up in a Chinook that blew me down a mountainside and into a mall where I wound up on a Greyhound bus destined for Edmonton, at which point I was debussed into the underground tunnels where I wandered for 13 kilometers in my continuing quest for that pot of gold. And while I didn't find riches, what I did find was just as good. It was Gavin Bradley. Oh, wow. I, I didn't know you, you went through all that, you know, you turned up. <laughs> do you, so I understand it's called the Edmonton Pedway. Do you get to use these tunnels and circuits that go from, from place to place very often? We do, yeah. When it gets to minus 42, minus 43, you're uh, very, very thankful for these pedways. That's bad that's in Fahrenheit and Celsius. That's just bad all around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's terrible. So I've had a few Albertans on the show, uh, even one who 
lived in Edmonton for a while. As a transplant, you're from Ireland. You, you've landed in an awesome dinosaur spot, uh, but also a very cold spot. Uh, certainly unlike anything I've ever had to endure in Ontario. What sort of character does just living in Edmonton grow on one's chest? Ah, uh, yeah, we all become stone-faced people of the north. We're just, <laughs> I know, it's, um, I mean, Ireland, to be fair, you know, it's not the French Riviera. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's very <laughs> wet and grey every single day. So it was coming from one type of bad weather to another type of bad weather. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't personally mind the cold too much. Uh, it's the summers, if you can believe it, that I can't stand. When everybody comes out and cheers, because the, the sun's out, that's when I crawl into the basement and hide. Was it T.S. Eliot that said that the winter kept us warm because we have to cuddle? <laughs> <laughs> but then again he was talking about a wasteland so that may not count uh so i took a peek at paleontology in ireland and it looks like according to my quick peek that a paleontologist could find things of great interest but they would have to be an invertebrate paleontologist and certainly not a dinosaur paleontologist as a guy in ontario when i learned that no matter where i was digging i wasn't going to find a dinosaur either i can appreciate your acceptance to have to, to leave your home to pursue yeah. your fossiliferous dreams and commend you on your sense of adventure and dedication. Now that you live in Edmonton, uh, you have a stake in the argument, though. How much better uh, than Calgary is Edmonton? Oh, I could talk. How, how long do we have? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm a big, big fan of Edmonton. Calgary's just ring roads and suburbs, man. Edmonton's a real, real artist city, you know. Uh, no, they're, they're both both lovely places. Edmonton fits me like a like a glove. You know, there's lots of places to kind of walk around here. The River Valley is beautiful, and of course, we got the U of A with all the all the dinosaurs. So, what, what more could you want? It's very poetic of you. All right. So, um, <laughs> so, what did Calgary do to paleontology that has let itself be bullied the way that it has? We have the Edmontonia, which is like a, an ankylosaur. We have the Edmontosaurus, which is a hadrosaur. We have the Albertosaurus, which is a tyrannosaur. We have the Albertoceratops, which is a ceratops. There have no dinosaurs that are named for Calgary. What happened there? <laughs> well, I think everyone just realizes Edmonton's natural superiority. And no, uh, a lot of those dinosaurs, uh, when you see Edmonton in the name, they're going to be named after the Edmonton formation that they're found, which I mean, in, it, in itself is named after the city. So it's kind of, um, you know, a kind of two step mm -hmm. named after, you know, Edmonton is the capital of Alberta. So, you know, deal, deal with it, <laughs> Calgary. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So uh, Alberta is a wonderful place. It's a very special spot in the world, uh, and it's got special places in itself. Because of its late Cretaceous rock formations and bountiful dinosaur discoveries, what fossils or paleontological experiences have you had that are special in your time in Alberta that you perhaps wouldn't have experienced had you somehow wound up in, you know, pursuing your dinosaur dreams in Europe or Mongolia or China? What's been special or, or fun about El Alberta? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, the, the cool thing about Alberta is there are so many different localities for you to find fossils in right so when i came over i came over from ireland 2012 i originally did my undergrad was in archaeology um so i mean ireland's great for archaeology right you have a castle every mile or so you have neolithic tombs and henges and stuff like that um wasn't exactly what i was into you know i wanted to i wanted to dig deeper so coming to Alberta, the thing I was most looking forward to is definitely the fieldwork um, and the fact that you could stay in the province and go to multiple different sites. You could spend your entire summer digging different sites right here in Alberta. I think it's absolutely incredible. You know, mm -hmm. it is without a doubt the best place in the world to find fossils. So we would spend um, 
you know, maybe six weeks down in Dinosaur Provincial Park, UNESCO World Heritage Site, you know, um, very, very good that they've recognized it as uh, it's a UNESCO geological site of interest now as well. That was just a couple of weeks ago. They, they named it that with mm. the Burgess Shield. Um, you can walk around Dinosaur Park, you know, walk around a corner, you're stepping on dinosaur bone, turn another corner, you're stepping on dinosaur bone. It's all there. It's right at the right at the surface level for us to collect as well. Um, you know, it's also remarkable for the amount of articulated skeletons you get. So oh, yeah. pretty much everything that's in the Royal Terrell Museum has been pulled out of somewhere like Dinosaur Provincial Park or their surrounding areas. So you can spend six weeks happily digging in, in Dinosaur Park, you know, camping down by the, the Red Deer River by our, our site at Happy Jacks, it's called, uh, which was an old kind of <laughs> cattle rancher had his had his shack down there. So it's it's a really unique and interesting place just to spend your time in fieldwork, you know, especially especially coming from a landscape like Ireland, which is green, 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 not a lot of hills. Do we have mountains? I think we might have two mountains. <laughs> um, and then suddenly, you know, you're driving to Dinosaur Provincial Park and you descend into that almost alien landscape. It's, mm -hmm. it's absolutely incredible. I don't do a lot of field work anymore. My my Irish my Irish bones and genetics <laughs> have not have not allowed for tracing around Dinosaur Park for weeks on end anymore. But you know the memories of camping out with coyotes howling on one side, rattlesnakes over in the other, and uh, you're there to dig some dinosaur bones is something that uh, will stay with me. You know it's it's incredible. So Dinosaur Park is great. You can do field work right here in Edmonton as well. We have a, a site called the Danek Bone Bed that's being dug. It's been dug for the last 10 years or so. And so if you want to study paleontology um, as an undergrad, this is one of the only places that you can come do a paleontology program and in your fourth year, join a dig and still go home to your house at night because um, it's it's within the boundaries of the back state. to the dorms so yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's awesome um so many different ways to find dinosaurs and then up north as well with grand prairie uh what's that four or five hours or so we would dig places like pipestone creek you know giant ceratopsian bone beds um and spend a few weeks up there as well so just the variety of fossil sites that you get here mm -hmm. and just the density of bones is is absolutely unbelievable now when you're exploring a, a site i understand that the fossils especially in alberta have more rights than you or i uh, do you have to be particularly careful about how you how what you do like as you spot them what you do yeah absolutely you always have to be mindful of the land that you're on yeah. for for a start you you know make sure you haven't um wandered into you know, a farmer's field, for example, you know, or um, if, if you're on the edge of, say, Dinosaur Provincial Park, make sure you haven't gone beyond the boundaries of the park. Uh, so that's that's important for a start. Um, here in Alberta, we do have kind of excellent preservation rights for fossils and excavation rights to kind of protect them and keep them within the province. And really that came out of, I don't know how many Albertans you've talked to so far, maybe they could give you a bit of a history of it. But essentially, in that great Canadian dinosaur rush in the early 20th century, people like Barnum Brown were coming over, finding, you know, Albertosaurus and, and all these great dinosaurs from Alberta. But those bones weren't staying in Alberta, right? They were going down to places like the American Museum of Natural History, the Smithsonian, and out to Ontario as well. Um, and so laws kind of came in by bits and pieces once uh, people started to realize, I think, that places like Dinosaur Provincial Park 
it getting its UNESCO World Heritage Site made mm. people kind of sit up and say, oh, like this stuff, this stuff isn't everywhere, right? Mm. You, you can't go anywhere and, and find the badlands of Dinosaur Provincial Park. You can't go everywhere and find a Gorgosaurus skeleton. <laughs> um, and so that kind of gave people a, a kick up the backside to then, um, you know, enact in law some protection for fossils. So in Alberta, you if you find a fossil, you can pick it up as long as it's not on, uh, you know, in a provincial park or something like that. Um, and as long as it's not buried in the substrate. So if it's a surface fossil, you can pick it up, mm-hmm. you can take it home. You can't sell it uh, is the the big important thing and the big distinction between here and the United States, for example. Um, so what we always recommend people to do, like if they find something on the surface, the chances are there's something bigger nearby. So if you GPS the site for a starter, then get in t- contact with uh, us at the U of A, um, the UFC as well, uh, paleontologists or uh, drum heller and uh, the royal Terrell museum of paleontology will let you know if you find something cool or not <laughs> it's certainly cool it's a dinosaur <laughs> Unless exactly it's... yeah yeah Rel- relatively cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I checked my records the things that people might find had they gone out there and they found stuff you guys have all, like all the late cretaceous greatest hits out there you've got uh, margins of aliens like the pachycephalosaurs you got the leptoceratopses you've got both types of uh, triceratops in terms of the chasmosaurs and the centrosaurs you got both types of ankylosaurs with the notosaurs as well. You got all the types of hadrosaurs with the sauralophs and the lamiosaurines. And I looked into, you got tons of dromaeosaurs and alvarosaurs and tyrannosaurs and then oviraptorids as well. And I think it was so basically everything, orthomimosaurs and it looks like an orodromaeus species of some sort. But anyhow, that's like everything. It's uh, yep. it's missing a few of the biggies. There are no sauropods. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't see any any... And anti-ornithines, if I pronounce it quite well. It's a tongue twist, a yeah. little. Uh, but those are kind of two that stick out that aren't available there. What? Um, first of all, I, if there's anywhere you could go find that cast of characters that you could possibly go out there and discover. Uh, and yeah. certainly when you've got the materials at hand there from the localities you're searching, you get to work with incredible uh, specimens and incredible animals. Uh, that has to be exciting in a lot, a lot of ways. Not everybody gets to work in a place like Alberta. Yeah, it's it's absolutely unbelievable. Basically, when you come into into Phil Curry's lab, or you know, if you're studying at the Terrell or something, or UFC as well, you have your pick of of what direction you want to go going in dinosaurs. And if it's not working in the first year of your master's or your PhD, you can swap. You can swap to a totally <laughs> different group, and there'll be another project there. Like I don't know many other places where you know a twenty year old Irishman with zero experience in dinosaurs could come in and do his research project on a juvenile gorgosaurus skeleton mm. right so the the variety of, of species that we have here is, is second to none you know maybe mongolia maybe china and obviously there's lots of similarities between the biota here and, and over in mongolia as well um it, it's absolutely unbelievable sauropods um yeah sauropods not found this far north what the consensus is I'm not too sure about whether there's a physical barrier that they're not crossing. Maybe the vegetation up here is just not what they're uh, what they're used to eating further down south. But we do have we still have fairly big herbivores with their our uh, duckbill dinosaurs or yeah. our hadrosaurs. So 14 meters from tip to tail, you know, <laughs> definitely a few tons few tons in length. And if you've ever had to to carry a hadrosaur femur a few kilometers back to camp 
Campy will be like, ah, oh, you know, this is big enough. <laughs> the, the sauropods can stay down, so that's all right. I can't imagine, yeah. And then, the, yeah, like the uh, the enanti ornithines, the bird-like animals. Um, are, do you think it's just a preservation bias that they were they're only really found in special places where preservation bias like really captures I, them, or or is it they're likely there? I like, do. Who knows if you'll find? You would find yeah. maybe teeth or claw. Like what, what what might you find if you were to find them? Absolutely. I mean, uh, so the, the problem with with little guys like that, little yeah. bird-like guys like that, is you know maybe they were found and misidentified. They're certainly not found in the same sites as say we get articulated skeletons. So we know if we're spending a whole summer, for example, here's another another type of uh, preservation or collection bias that you could have, right? So when we're walking around, uh, we're looking for spectacular specimens, right? We we have a an embarrassment of riches in Dinosaur Provincial Park. So not everybody is going to be looking for those little bones <laughs> of bird like dinosaurs or things or anything like that. They're looking for, you know, a tyrannosaur tooth sticking out of the rocks so that we can get that and mount it in the in the museum or something like that. So there's definitely a, a collection bias there. Probably uh, preservational biases just in general, small things are harder to find than mm. things, right? There, um, especially with theropods. Theropods have those hollow bones, those light bones. Um, and so there's going to be a, a bias against uh, them preserving in the fossil record. Uh, things like teeth, you know, if they have teeth that are in any way similar to other small theropod teeth, maybe they have been collected, but they've just been misidentified mm-hmm. as well. So, you know, if somebody's sitting at a what we call a microsite, which is kind of a dense collection of, of really small fossils that have washed in from different areas, you know, maybe they're going, you know, fish, fish, theropod, fish, and, and maybe not looking into things mm-hmm. uh, as closely as there. So there's definitely a preservational side of things. And there's definitely um, a collection bias there as well. Um, but I mean, things like eggshell. Eggshell is also extremely uncommon in Alberta. That's one of the things that we don't have a lot of. So, you know, maybe there's also a behavioral element to, to certain certain patterns that we're seeing in the fossil record of, of Lake Cretaceous here in Alberta. You know, maybe nests are in a different area. Maybe they're not as close to the coastline, which is basically... You know, places like Dinosaur Provincial Park, you have the Western Interior Seaway to your east. It's a big river system environment going out to this, you know, continental seaway, basically. So maybe the nests, nesting grouds are kept somewhere else, maybe in upland environments that don't preserve so well. So there's a few different things that could be going on there, um, but definitely one of the harder, harder things to find. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it proves to be. Um, so I looked at some of the research page, papers that you've had a, been, a, been a part of, and listeners will recall my last uh, guest from episode 40, uh, Control was Dr. Scott Persons. You collaborated with him at Al <laughs> on a paper yeah. about oviraptorids, which makes, uh, you know, this a small world and also a very cool world. Uh, and it looks yeah. like you had a role in helping refer some new materials and so with dinosaur names, I can read them just fine and I know what they are. But when it comes to saying them out loud, I found on a podcast, that becomes one of those matters where I'm like, I don't know. So synignathus? Uh, so, that, yeah, that will be pronounced uh, canignathids. Okay. It is also totally fine. What I tell my students is it doesn't matter how you pronounce it because there's there's not going to be an oral exam at the end of this, Ryan. Don't worry about it, you know. Um, and, you know, with my Irish accent, I'm sure I absolutely butcher some some Greek and Latin dinosaurs. But it's a hard C. Yeah. You yeah. never know. Hard right. C. 
But that was an animal that was described back in, it looks like, the 30s. Uh, so you were just saying you might be interested in telling a bit about what your role was in in that paper. Yeah, so I, I was very much the, the atoll in that, that paper. <laughs> um, so the, the cool thing about... The cool thing about paleontology in general, uh, when you're talking about research, is it is so multifaceted. So if you are, you know, if you're kind of sitting at home listening to this and you, you're like, oh, I want to be a paleontologist, but I'm not good at biology. Well, that's okay. Maybe you're good at art and you can provide the paleo illustrations for a scientific paper, which is becoming more and more a part of scientific research papers now that the more that kind of go online um, and you don't have to pay for those printing costs and stuff like that. Um, you know, maybe again, you're not a great writer. You can't, you just can't picture yourself sitting down and writing 20 pages on the systematics of canic nathids like mm. Greg Funston <laughs> did for this paper. Um, but you're good at maths. Um, and so my contribution for this paper was the statistics side of things. Um, so essentially he, so there's a, a big problem in body mass estimations in dinosaurs. So with body mass estimations, <clears throat> um, you can go way back to like the 30s and 40s when they were, uh, the way to estimate body mass was basically to put a dinosaur model at the end of a plumb bob, uh, a string, and <laughs> dunk it in water, calculate the displacement, uh, and then you've got your volume of your model and you can kind of extrapolate that out. As you can imagine, not not the most accurate one, but it was definitely better than nothing, right? So uh, the problem there, of course, is that is the model in any way accurate? Um, and that's actually uh, an experiment that I run with our uh, first year, our second year dinosaur course here. Uh, we get a bunch of Dollarama dinosaurs mm -hmm. and we use that method to see how accurate the dinosaur models are and, you know, Spoiler, the Dollarama dinosaurs are not, <laughs> not too accurate. You know, you have your, your little Velociraptor that's bigger than the sauropod model. You, you can kind of get a hint. Um, but yeah, so that was how, how they were calculating body mass back uh, uh, in the early part of the 20th century. In the 80s, uh, a group of researchers in Florida, uh, Anderson and their atoll, um, looked at a bunch of modern animals and figured out there was a correlation between uh, the femur, so the upper leg bone, the size of the circumference of the upper leg bone and the body mass of that animal. And they were able to uh, use a whole suite of animals from zoos and other uh, other enclosures and say, hey, dinosaurs were animals that we can compare to modern to modern animals. So this correlation probably holds true for them as well. So whenever you saw really between the 80s, <clears throat> 80s and, you know, 2010s, Whenever you saw those headlines saying biggest dinosaur ever found or something like that, this is the method they were typically using. Mm -hmm. uh, so they would measure the, the circumference femur and then they could plot that and say, oh, body mass estimation based on modern animals is this. So this has been updated by researchers Nick Campioni and Dave Evans worked on this 2014 and a little bit after to kind of modernize it. Uh, calibrate that equation based on animals that make a bit more sense. So you can split like four-legged dinosaurs and two-legged dinosaurs okay, okay. together. So you have a specific one for like theropods, for example, your tyrannosaurs, etc., and one for like ankylosaurs and, and those sorts of dinosaurs, which is great. Now you have a, a computer program 
that you can just plug your femoral circumference into and it gives you a much, much more accurate body mass estimation. Body mass estimations are important for, you know, life history curves, things like that. So how, how quickly did this dinosaur grow? It's important sometimes for differentiating species like Greg was doing in this paper. You had a large bodied canignathid and a small bodied canignathid eventually. Um, <clears throat> and it's important for looking at things like metabolism, right? How, how much did this dinosaur eat? How much would it have needed to eat to keep up its energy levels, etc. So the problem with using the femoral circumference is that the femur is not always intact, right? So if you have tons and tons of sediment uh, pressing down on a bone for tens of millions of years, it's sometimes going to be a little squished. Mm -hmm. And so when I was looking through my, uh, trying to do my, my master's research, I found that we had this huge problem of missing data, which would be super useful if we could, you know, uh, kind of boost those sample sizes for body mass estimation studies. And so basically I just used high school mathematics, you know, uh, kind of the uh, circumference of a circle versus circumference of an ellipse. I tested the different types of models that you could use. Um, and I did it for Tyrannosaur dinosaurs because that's what I was interested in. Um, and then you could kind of, to basically get a way of estimating the, the circumference of the femur if you didn't have the entire circumference. So it was a very, very boring study <laughs> that I would, I would not recommend that you, you read. It's, it's a lot of stats, it's a lot of measurements. Um, but pretty useful because, you know, uh, researchers then like Greg, who came across, you know, this uh, femur, but not a complete femur, uh, could then still estimate the body uh, body mass of, of this kind of enigmatic, elusive dinosaur. Hmm. Um, and Scott, who you were talking to last week, was also able to, I don't know if he mentioned Scotty the T-Rex, Scotty, the T-Rex body mass estimation, uh, probably the biggest Tyrannosaurus Rex ever found. Um, he used that little formula that I got from the body mass estimation research for that as well. So that was kind of my contribution for that paper. There's a very long-winded way to say <laughs> I came up with a little formula based on high school math <laughs> that lets you estimate um, body mass, even if you don't have the, uh, the entire bone there. That's yeah, cool. And so Scott Persons and Scotty the T-Rex, no relation, of course. No relation. <laughs> I've never questioned him. You know, he, you know, he claims that it was named before he got there, but no. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a weird, weird coincidence. I, I always wondered if that's maybe how he got on, got onto the paper and was able to, to describe it. He's like, well, it's, it's named after me. But now, yeah, if I, um, if yeah, I, so it's, it's cool when you do a little project like that, that uh, actually gets used after. <laughs> Well, if I recall correctly, uh, if I re if I read it correctly, uh, determining that the, the the specimens which have been uncovered of the Canignathus, determining that they were a larger version of um, the holotype, was important. Dis declaring it to be distinct from a other type of uh, theropod, the um, uh, uh, Chirostenodes. Chirostenodes, yeah, it was on the tip of my yeah. tongue. <laughs> But uh, but that was important it came, it, when it was really essential in terms of declaring this to be specifically uh, one animal and declaratively not another. So that was it played a big role in that. I thought that 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 was yeah, pretty cool. absolutely. I mean, it's it, it was a, a very weird circumstance because I I think I just published my paper on on all that body mass stuff maybe you know a few weeks before, 
And then Greg comes across this femur that has this exact problem. He's like, oh, well, do you want to <laughs> help me out here? Uh, so, you know, that's the other good thing about being in a collaborative research lab, right? Um, <clears throat> you know, not everybody. And again, if you're at home listening to this, wanting to be a paleontologist, but worried that you don't have skill set X, Y, or Z, you will be joining a lab environment. If, if you kind of go into the academia route, you will be joining a, a museum lab environment if you go work for a museum. And so there will always be someone who has that mm -hmm. skill set that you don't have that you can collaborate on. And that's, you know, it makes the scientific process uh, better and it makes the scientific papers more more rigorous as well, having different different opinions and points of view coming in. Mm, paleontologists need coffee too. You could be a, a paleontologist coffee gopher and you'd be... <laughs> Absolutely. Some, some have said that's Essential what I was part of the my grad school, right? <laughs> <laughs> so when I think of oviraptorids, I have a, a bias from my youth that they are, in my mind, almost strictly a Mongolian animal. Um, but it, as, as it would appear that there is an extraordinary connectivity between the, the Laramidia part of North America in the Lake Cretaceous and, and I don't know what you call I found a word like Baltica. I'm not sure what you call the landmass in the Mongolian area over there, but there there are strong connections uh, between like, yeah, a Tarbosaurus and I mean, a Tyrannosaurus yeah. are extraordinarily similar. Over Absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know, Tyrannosaurus rex a few years ago uh, fell out in the, the phylogenetic tree as being closer to Tarbosaurus over from Mongolia than it is to the other North American Tyrannosaurines, right? So which was a big shock, but maybe it, it shouldn't have been, right? You know, we know that uh, Western North America and places like Siberia, Mongolia have been connected throughout the years with that uh, with that Bering Land Bridge. And so dinosaurs are definitely making the trip across uh, at some some point in time, you know, whether, whether or not um, Tyrannosaurs kind of started over here and then shifted across there or or vice versa. Uh, not too sure. I mean, Tyrannosaurus rex certainly seems like it would have been an immigrant uh, based on kind of mm -hmm. uh, that, that uh, how, how it fell out in the phylogenetic tree. But there's uh, extremely close similarities between the, the biota over there and, and the ones that we find here in places like Dinosaur Provincial Park. So it's it's also great in terms of comparative material. So, you know, if you do have something like, you know, Greg found with these kinognathids and raptors that there isn't a lot of material here in dinosaur provincial park uh he he went to mongolia and was able to to look at the, the loads of uh, of oviraptors that they they had there for comparative material so um there's more and more people i think doing comparative work between the two and it's it's another great kind of resource to have when you're working in the late cretaceous mm, that's interesting because you're saying how very scarce eggs are in Alberta, but mm -hmm. as far as I understand it, in Mongolia, oviraptors there are plenty of eggs that they find all the time, <laughs> and so it's yeah, just strange I mean, that I, they would uh, they, they would be such similar animals, but what you find are are so different. That's strange. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's probably a factor of the environment, either yeah. the preservational environment or just the ecosystem at the time. Is you know the Gobi Desert st still a desert, right? Um, and so bit more desiccation, a little more protection. If you're getting stuff covered by, you know, sand, it's a little less destructive than um, Dinosaur Provincial Park, where it's typically river systems moving down mm -hmm. from those kind of Rocky Mountain areas. 
and, and covering things with mud. So I, I do think that's probably probably a preservational bias. Um, but yeah, we're we're still always on the lookout for for egg material here in here in Alberta. We have, I mean, we have embryonic material. We okay. just Don't have a lot of eggs. <laughs> so, I know, which is in, infuriating. But yeah, um, so you know, maybe there is something preservationally uh, going on that we're not not too sure about. Yeah, that's something. All right. So we were just mentioning a little bit about how uh, the Tyrannosaurus are very very similar. Uh, between Mongolia and North America, and you had a chance to look a little bit more closely at uh, at Tyrannosaurus, in particular the again, if I if I'm reading these things correctly, the the ontogenetic gregariousness of Gorgosaurs is that about how they were likely to live in social groups as they grew up and maybe separated into individuals or, or independent species as they got too big to play nice. Yeah, that's that's exactly the question that I was I was looking at. Um, really my choice of question, because that is an absolutely enormous research question. Yeah, how do you, question how do you begin to answer master. that? <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. So uh, really I was just picking something that would let me do as many different things as possible. So I wanted to, I wanted to have a go at, at basically everything. So the cool thing about that project is it has the on, ontogeny in it. So I was working um, mainly describing a... Uh, well, we say juvenile Gorgosaurus, uh, Matilda, that was found uh, a number of years, just a couple of years before I came over to Canada. Really, really nice little specimen. Um, one of the, the smaller Gorgosaurus specimens that have been found, um, but I would call it kind of a teenager. You know, it was a mm-hmm. it was a snotty teen of, of the Tyrannosaur world. Um, and so it was a really nice specimen to look at as kind of an in-between growth series. So... Um, that meant that I could not only describe the features on that and compare them to adult features and see what changes. Is anything there related to, you know, social behavior or social cues? You know, the way we have uh, crests and hadrosaurs, for example, will shoot up when they get to that time of sexual maturity. So the, assum- the assumption there is that, uh, um, you know, maybe they're associated with sexual display or something like that. Can we see similar trends in this tyrannosaur? Um, and the reason I was kind of interested in Gorgosaurus, one, we had it, which was great. <laughs> so I, di- I didn't have to spend the first year digging it out of the ground. We just had to spend the first year kind of prepping it out of the um, out of the case. Uh, and Ian McDonald worked really, really hard trying to uh, kind of prepare the specimen. And I, I came in and, you know, would do a couple of hours here and there, but he did a phenomenal job. Um, but the reason I was interested in looking at, at social behavior in this animal in particular is that with tyrannosaurs every other tyrannosaur has been found with conspecifics right so you mentioned they're hanging around uh, with juveniles and then maybe leaving when it's older you know we have tyrannosaurus rex has been found with other t-rexes right albertosaurus we know from the albertosaurus bone bed at dry island where you have you know what looks like a whole a whole grex or a whole pack of albertosaurus displetosaurus um all, all of our, our major tyrannosaurs have been found with other, uh, with, you know, members of their own species, except for Gorgosaurus. Mm. Uh, and so in, you know, in science, absence of evidence isn't evidence. So I was trying to kind of uh, examine that a little bit closer. And the cool thing about Gorgosaurus is that it's uh, one of two tyrannosaurs that would have been living at this time in this area. The other one is a slightly bigger, bigger, kind of stockier 
uh, prize fighter of uh, uh, Displetosaurus. And so Displetosaurus has been found with conspecifics. So maybe what was happening and what I was kind of theorizing is that Displetosaurus are the, they're the lions, right? They're hanging about in packs, you know, whether that's all the time or just when you get seasonal gluts of food or something like that. Uh, and then Gorgosaurus is more like a leopard. It's staying by itself. Mm. It's stalking prey. It's using ambush methods. And it's not having a competing pack is how Gorgosaurus is surviving in the same area as another massive Tyrannosaurid predator. So that was kind of the kickoff for it. And it ended up going in so many different directions. Um, I ended up, because I wanted body mass estimates, I ended up doing that body mass estimate study on the way. I was like, oh, this would be this would be interesting. This would be useful. Mm. I ended up looking at uh, tooth wear patterns in, in Gorgosaurus and, and seeing how different they are between a juvenile and an adult, which is really cool. That's a, a paper we're still, believe it or not, trying to trying to put out six six years later. As soon as you get a job, uh, it's maybe not as important to to push these papers out. Um, mm-hmm. So I have definitely been the hold up there. Um, but the cool thing uh, is that there were these these changes from from adult to juvenile uh, that we could see in in the specimen, and it, it allowed me to do so many different things. So uh, another big part of the project was histology because it's talking about growth. Um, so if you haven't had anyone talking about histology yet, it's looking at the microstructure of dinosaur bones to see how these things grew. Uh, and so I got to spend a lot of hours with the big scary bone saw in the bone saw lab, <laughs> trying not to saw my own bones and trying to saw these uh, tyrannosaur bones take thin sections of them. So we could shine that microscope light through it and, uh, and try and find some growth rings. So some lines of arrested growth. Um, and that let me chart a little growth curve for for Gorgosaurus. So yeah, it was, it was a cool cool project. Lots of different aspects. That... <laughs> Too big a question. <laughs> sounds a too big awesome. a question. Yeah, the the answer was I don't know. <laughs> that sounds like the answers I know of. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, uh, paper delaying jobs, I found you because I was browsing through um, your University of Alberta profile where you were listed as the prof who teaches dinosaurs one hundred and one. Uh, which sounds like a kind of class I'd like to say, what type of students take Dinosaurs 101? Is there a wait list? Do you need prerequisites? How do you get into this thing? <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. So uh, Dino 101 is uh, it's what, what we call a MOOC, a massive open online course. Uh, so you anyone anywhere around the world can go and take Dino 101. You can go on to Coursera. If you just Google Dino 101, you can log in for free and get started today. Uh, my mom, my mom back in Ireland, proudly has her completion certificate on on the fridge, which is very cool. Um, so it is, you know, it's intro to dinosaurs. Pretty much a lot of the things that we've been talking about today, uh, presented by by Phil Curry and and a lot of different grad students who were here at the time uh, helped out with that that course. And we also have other kind of introductory courses on ancient marine reptiles. So if you're interested in plesiosaurs and mosasaurs, mm. uh, early vertebrate evolution. So how you, how we got backbone, basically. Um, and uh, theropod dinosaurs and the origin of birds, which if you're listening to a dinosaur podcast, that's mm-hmm. probably mm-hmm. what you're most interested in. And they're all up there for free on Coursera. Um, but the great thing about my job is I also get to teach them at the University of Alberta and um, I use, basically, I use the, the those online courses as textbooks for the course. So I teach um, Introduction to Dinosaur Paleobiology here at the U. Um, and because we have this textbook that is 
that's covering the foundations, then we can do whatever we want in <laughs> class. So we get to go to, uh, I take them to the geoscience garden, we go down to the dino uh, prep lab, we go to the Earth and Atmospheric Sciences Museum that we have here at UVA. It's been there since the 1920s. We've had, uh, had collections here. Um, we get to basically go on field trips, have fun, and uh, and do different activities in class. So that's where we get to to dunk those dinosaur okay, models okay. in water as well. Yeah, field trip to the dollar store. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what's the first thing somebody's in? You know, the first class. What's the first thing people need to know about dinosaurs when you sit down and say, "All right, we're going to learn about dinosaurs today." Yeah. So <laughs> the the very first thing I tell them uh, is that. Where I grew up, there were no dinosaurs. Uh, so I, I show them a picture of Ireland. I show them uh, Ireland's fossil record for dinosaurs, which is exactly two bones uh, that could fit in the palm of my hand. Uh, and then I can point to my desk and teaching and say, there are more fossils on this desk than there are in my entire country. Mm. So we're just trying to give them a, that sense of how lucky we are in Alberta mm. and the cool things that they're going to see. And then I'll, I'll spend the first class basically doing a greatest hits compilation of all the cool projects that have come out over the last 10 years from the University of Alberta, you know, oh. from a dinosaur teal trapped in amber that Ryan McKellar worked on to the world's first embryonic tyrannosaur to the world's first baby chasmosaur, our, our beautiful fossil um, baby down in the, the prep lab found back in 2013 now, um, that they will get to see up close and personal uh, in, in the course. So. The, the cool thing about this course, as you kind of suggested, there's a load of different students who take it. So it's about, I would say, maybe five students who want to be paleontologists who are there for the Paleo Honours Programme. But then the majority of the course is people taking this course as an option. And they've loved dinosaurs as a kid, but and this is this is going to be their only chance probably yeah. in university or life to really do something like this so it's it's all about kind of inspiration in the course and just making them excited and enthusiastic about dinosaurs and that's why i'm a good fit for that course <laughs> when you get up to the the upper level 400 courses you know that's that's where you need someone else but you need someone to kind of inspire people and and have fun talking about dinosaurs that's what i really really enjoy doing so the, the courses kind of fit me fit me like a like a glove, um, and we have a lot of fun. That's cool. Yeah, class the first class, getting everybody excited about the exciting things that have manifested from investigating the uh, the formations of Alberta. That is an exciting way to get people hooked and interested, as opposed to starting off with like, um, see the measurements on the hip of this, not a dinosaur. Yeah. Forget about it. See the measurements of the hips yeah. of this dinosaur. We're gonna hang <laughs> on to this one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Let's take a deep dive into phylogenetic trees today. And like, oh no, yeah. Uh, so so that—that's my don't drop the course spiel. Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> well, as you described uh, earlier, you mentioned that you know people from all over the world, even Ireland, can uh, attend this uh, online class. And you, of course, are a transplant from Ireland who's come to Canada to pursue mm. paleontology. And from that, um, it looks like if I were to read the title of this book, it's called Separation Anxiety. <laughs> it would appear that it is a collection of poems which, um, perhaps without having read any of it, I would interpret it as a coping mechanism for being away from the Emmer of Isle while, uh, while working abroad. Um, tell me about good. separation anxiety and uh, what was your inspiration for, for writing this book of poetry? Yeah, so uh, poetry is kind of something that I've been working away at since I was a, a teenager, an angsty, angsty teenager, <laughs> listening, listening to angsty teenager bands. 
Um, and then when I moved across from Ireland, you know, I, it wasn't one of those cases where, you know, my parents are like, oh, you have a you have an uncle in Alberta. Why don't you go live with them? Like, I, I knew, knew that I knew nobody in Canada. Yeah. Um, I basically came here on a whim on a, on exchange to start with. I was like, I need something different. Um, I saw a poster for an exchange to the U of A. I saw U of A has dinosaurs. Uh, and then between that and landing in Edmonton, I didn't, I didn't even Google the city. So I was like, I just want something completely different. Yeah. Throw whatever. I, I mean, in retrospect, it's crazy, I would have yeah. bought a coat. I would have bought a church coat before coming here. But, um, you know, that was very much the romantic, poetic way to do things. Um, but then, yeah, when I when I got here, you know, a, a great group of friends, you know, the lab group that I joined was fantastic as well. But you always, you always miss your culture. You always miss the language, the land, the people. Uh, and so poetry became a way that I could... You know, I, I could write without having to amend my accent, right? I could I could write without having to change to be kind of understood and things like that. Mm. So it was a way of me kind of preserving that that life that I'd left behind um, and being able to continue to explore it and, and keep a hold of it over here. So that's a lot of the the themes that the the book um, covers. So even if you're you're not into poetry, which if you're listening to dinosaur <laughs> podcast, pro- probably, probably not. Maybe, yeah, I'm not maybe. sure what the Venn diagram <laughs> looks for, for, for poetry and dinosaurs. Um, you know, I think kind of being transplanted or, or moving and leaving something behind is, is something that everyone can, can relate mm. to. So, uh, in that way, it's a very accessible book of poetry. You know, you mentioned T.S. Eliot earlier on. It's definitely not as, <laughs> as opaque as, as T.S. Eliot. So, yeah. Well, but it, it was, uh, it was um, so the Edmonton Poetry Festival, uh, it won the prize for poetry, which is more prestigious than winning the Edmonton Poetry Festival for eat, hot dog eating or something like that. So that's, yeah. uh, uh, it's an acclaimed <laughs> piece of work, with, uh, you know, that's pretty good. It, it, we were talking earlier about like what kind of guts it takes to, to move to Edmonton and what, you know, but like even publishing uh, a book of poetry, that requires a different type of, of courage to, to expose yourself in yeah, a way, you know? It's Absolutely. That was, uh, and so Northern Ireland, where I'm from, we had 40 years of, we had 40 years of civil war, really, until the, you know, the 2000s there. And so it's not a place where you stand up and talk about yourself a lot, right? We, we tend to be a very introverted sort of society. So that was actually my biggest culture shock, I would say, coming to North America was, I was meeting like Americans who, coming up from America, who would be like, the thing about me is, I'm like, oh no, what? <laughs> Can you do that? Here? Look out! <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was that was bizarre, and I I couldn't couldn't get used to that, and so that was definitely the toughest part about writing this because it talks about you know it talks about uh, leaving home and stuff like that, and you know you always worry, oh you know is that gonna is it gonna make my mum cry? Yeah, mm. and probably, but. Um, and it also, you know, talks about relationships and stuff uh, as well. So definitely a lot more vulnerable than I ever planned mm-hmm. on, on being. But, you know, when I was sitting down to write, that's that's sort of what came out. And that's how the book came together. So and I, I really don't think if I hadn't moved to North America, I don't I don't think I would have written that book at mm-hmm. all um, because there is just more of a, com- a comfort level here of 
kind of self-reflection and, and just talking about yourself in general. Mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, you, you worry that perhaps people who'd like dinosaurs may not also appreciate art. But I think that we all, especially people who enjoy Jurassic Park or films or books or movies, mm-hmm. that there's an element of catharsis that uh, witnessing something of greatness, uh, something that's relatable, whether it be sad or happy, something relatable that helps bring about and stir emotions within ourselves that we can connect to is always, is never out of style. And so yeah. um, I think that there is certainly a connectivity that can be made whether it's poetry or whether it's uh, Jurassic Park, <laughs> that, that people can connect yeah. with. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, some of the most creative people that I know are scientists as well. So that idea that you are, you have a scientific mind or you have an artistic mind mm. is is absolute nonsense, right? Um, I mean, Phil Curry himself is a massive fan of, of Kubrick in 2001, A Space Odyssey <laughs> and things like that. And if you get him talking about those sorts of things, he could go on about uh, different different artists that he loves forever. Um, and I mean, we've talked about paleo art before. Some of the paleo artists that we have, even just at the U of A, um, you know, Sidney Moore, Henry Sharp are absolutely incredible. And they're they're very good paleontologists as well. So I believe it. So speaking of award winning literature, guess how many awards I looked it up. Jurassic Park has won. Oh, the book. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go seven. Maybe. <laughs> in doubt, yes. Seven. That could be. I went to Crichton's <laughs> website, and he won awards for some of his works, not for Jurassic Park. The one I could find was called the Secondary Bilby Award, where secondary school students pick books I love best yearly, Bilby. And in 1996, six years after the novel came out, three years after the movie, it won a high school award in Australia. <laughs> Ah, that's, that's the only that's word awesome. I, I got to get into that. Yeah. So it was, uh, it's far from a critically acclaimed novel, but a bestseller and, uh, and yeah. certainly an inspiration for everyone. Um, you'd mentioned yes. that you wanted to read the novel, but admitted something has interfered. <laughs> and then you gave me like a bit of a wink uh, I, as if there is a, a story worth asking. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if it's, it's a story or just laziness. No, but um, so, I don't believe it was laziness. I don't believe that. Yeah. So, I mean, we, you gave me months, months notice for this podcast. And I was like, okay, this is, I'm finally going to do it. Because I've seen the movie hundreds mm-hmm. of times, right? I'm, go- I'm finally going to sit down and read. But my issue with reading Jurassic Park has always been, it feels like work. Oh, yeah? yeah. <laughs> Which is ridiculous. Yeah, so we have a, we have a phrase in, in Ireland, a bus driver's holiday. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you just have that over here, but... Uh, Basically, it's, you know, the bus driver never actually gets to take in the sights when they're they're driving the coach around, you know, Europe and stuff like that. Um, and so when I um, I finally got a couple of weeks uh, vacation there at the start of the year and I was like, OK, this podcast coming up, I'm going to sit down and read it. I opened the first page. and was like, oh, no, this is work. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not doing this. So I, I don't want to think about a dinosaur for two weeks and then yeah um but i did i did read the the one chapter you're on just okay. just in case you have you have questions about it and honestly it was is pretty good you know I, <laughs> like i mean the the idea of being in a, an amusement park with living dinosaurs i guess is far enough detached from work <laughs> that that I was maybe being a bit silly all these years so i mean after the podcast i'm actually going to go read the books so. <laughs> All right. Well, like I said, if you ever do it, do it for fun. You, yeah. So you did peek at this week's chapter because this is the goofy. I one. did. I, I had a look, and it was it was an interesting chapter to to look at. I thought the Tyrannosaurus was doing some interesting things. 
<laughs> so to me, it's literally, it's like Jack and the Beanstalk where Jack's got uh, the harp and the goose that lays the golden egg and he's sneaking by the sleeping giant. <laughs> and he's yes. trying to, and then somebody, I forget what wakes the giant. Maybe the honk sneezes or the goose honks or something. I don't know. But uh, something wakes the giant and then he has to run down the beanstalk and then chop down the beanstalk before the giant gets down the beanstalk so that they are all safe. And this is exactly like Crichton must have been just out of ideas. Because <laughs> here we've got they're tiptoeing past this sleeping tyrannosaur that's lying there. It's burping. <laughs> it's, it, it was it was scratching. It's scratching behind its ear like a dog was yeah. was the one that stood out for me. Yeah, the anatomy of how yeah. the legs and arms worked on the tyrannosaur may not have been right in Crichton's wheelhouse. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> and then it uh, it like kind of like well, I guess I'll go get these guys. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, everybody, uh, when they'd say, oh, what was different about the book compared to the movie was the scene where the Tyrannosaur swims. And everybody seemed very yeah. attached to this. And it's uh, it's exciting. It's uh, imaginative in a way that uh, you don't commonly get depicted in, in popular fiction in terms of like, what did Tyrannosaurs do? Well, they don't swim um, up into last year, I suppose. Last year, there was mm-hmm. some Tyrannosaur swimming. <laughs> but uh, that, yeah, so that's a big part, that really big takeaway. Um couched in a very goofy sort of tableau of what on earth is going on here yeah it was, it was odd and uh lex just couldn't stop coughing yeah. i guess she, just... she always coughs at the wrong time i guess yeah <laughs> that, that was cool though I, I really liked that i was like you'd mentioned something was different about that chapter it's like oh wow no i'll definitely read it um and the swimming tra- i mean i think it's another example of the book being ahead of its time a little bit Mm -hmm. um in that you know i think it was 2007 the first swimming traces so like footprints that suggest that a theropod was actually swimming and grazing the bottom bottom of the of the lake bed you know were were described so you know what 10 12 years ahead of its time and then you know 2013 we had u of a researchers uh work on some trackways from china as well where again looks like a theropod, a little guy. So the, the water water level in this river was maybe like 90 centimeters. So mm. a little theropod was swimming across, just reaching the bottom uh, and leaving these kind of toe drag marks or, or trace marks. So, uh, I mean, and now, of course, we have Spinosaurus, which mm-hmm. aquatic, semi-aquatic, definitely able to swim in water. So, um, yeah, it was a very cool very cool depiction um a bit ahead of its time again not not the belching and not the not the ear <laughs> scratching but but the swimming i'm i'm okay with actually i thought it was very cool yeah and it uh we don't get a lot of that we don't get a lot of that uh I, you know what that's uh i'm trying to remember in the movie dinosaur that disney did the pixar or the disney one mm-hmm. i remember there was a, a cataclysmic event and uh and a lot of them ran into the water to escape uh, their island so there were some iguanodons in that one, anyhow, that were swimming. Yeah, yeah. Um, if I recall. That one, I think they did, I mean, and this is not. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say the good dinosaur did okay. uh, a big flood event. Yes, which, yes. I mean, I don't think the dinosaur in question successfully navigated the water. Not to spoil anything no. for somebody who hasn't seen that movie. Um, but, I mean, that was also... <laughs> You know, they were also farmers in that film, so mm-hmm. uh, maybe mm-hmm. not. Scientific accuracy is probably not at the forefront. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, we definitely have swimming traces for dinosaurs, specifically for theropod dinosaurs. 
I I haven't listened to Scott's section because I know how good Scott is as a guest, and mm. I was like, he's going to psych me out. Um, <laughs> but I I'm going to assume that Scott was talking about the Cotto femoralis. We did get into uh, how they ran and what he what he discovered about uh, the arms race between a sprinting hadrosaur and a sprinting carnivore. Yeah, yeah. we got into um, but that that big group of muscles um, attaching from the, the femur to the to the tail. That would definitely be helpful if if Tyrannosaurus Rex needed to swim a bit. Mm-hmm. It's got that strong, powerful tail. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. no reason why it couldn't. Yeah, yeah to, to think of, of modern analogs, like there, there are not a lot of animals that have a great big, long, thick tail like that, uh, and certainly not bipedal. And so, when you look at anything that's got that big tail, we're talking fish, sharks, crocodiles, alligators. I don't know. The kangaroo doesn't really count. Like nothing really has that tail. It's really difficult mm-hmm. to imagine. Um, when you reflect back in deep time, how something like that might have been used uh, 70 million years ago, it's really, really challenging to, ex- to plop yourself into that completely alien, uh, world of where yeah, you're standing absolutely. right now, you know? but, um, yeah. I mean, yeah, you can, you know, we're, we're always trying to use what's called the extant phylogenetic bracket <laughs> okay. in paleontology. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> basically a, a big phrase just means, we look at crocodiles and birds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> crocodiles and birds are the two living relatives of closest living relatives of dinosaurs. Um, but even then, there there are some parallels just physiologically that, that you can't make, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, certainly if you look at a spinosaurus, you can look directly at a crocodile and say, oh, yeah, that squished tail, that heightened tail, it's got that long snout, definitely some crocodilian features there. But I mean... You know, if you're looking for swimming analogs for a Tyrannosaurus Rex, maybe like an <laughs> an ostrich, an emu, you know, mm-hmm. just without the tail. I mean, uh, I know somebody had the idea to hang, like, basically attach fake tails to the back of turkeys mm-hmm. and chickens a few years ago to see how that would change things. I don't know. I don't know if they ever got ethics to do that or not, but that I mean, that would be one way, I guess, that you could sort of mimic it. Um, obviously, a, a much easier way is to mm. uh, recreate things in, in uh, computer programs, right? Well, Similar to what Spielberg would have done for the, for the movie. I know that Ian Malcolm would have quite a bit to say about the, the ethics of scientific inquiry. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, then he, and then he goes on to do that very much. In, in, uh, well, um, we're almost flat out of time. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Loved hearing all about your experiences. It's incredible. And uh, I'm going to check out Dinosaurs 101. I hope everybody yeah, does. you should. Where do they go to find uh, absolutely. it? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it? so if you if you just type Dino 101 into Google, uh, it should be the first thing that pops up. Uh, if not, just go to Coursera. So mm-hmm. Coursera is a platform with all these free courses on it. And you can just search Dino 101 in there. Mm. And your book, if they wanted to, to investigate where to, to see some of your literature. Yeah, where- so it's... Yeah, I know. If, you, if you're sick of dinosaurs after after this podcast <laughs> and you just want to embrace the wide world of poetry, uh, you can um, go to your local independent bookstore and say, hey, do you have Separation Anxiety by Gavin Bradley? And I'll get it in for you. Um, you can also order it on, on Amazon as well. There's um, lots of copies on there. So. Mm-hmm. Truth is beauty and beauty is truth. Say exactly. That's that's the first <laughs> poem. <Yeah. laughs> that's my me quoting the only poet I know. <laughs> Well, thanks so much again. Well, this you, has been you know two now, right? That's I know two. That there we go. There we go. Well, thanks so much. It's been a, a great pleasure. I really, really appreciate it.
yeah, thanks very much for having me on, and uh, best luck in your journey through through the park through the to the end of the book. Well, thank you. All right, a great big thank you to to Gavin. Gavin, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, it was a lot of fun. This week's text is The Park, spanning from pages 260 to 268. In a synopsis, Grant, Lex, and Tim scare away a Mayasaura, climb down the tree, and head back to the maintenance shed to get a raft to float down the Jungle River. Meanwhile, Arnold steps away from the monitors to meet with Hammond and Wu. Grant and the kids find a tranquilizer gun and head to the dock at the lagoon. But the big Rex is there, sleeping, so they sneak into the raft, but Lex blows their getaway by coughing, awakening Big Rex and having her swim after them. Characters, Lex Murphy. Lex is covered in a layer of fine dust on 262. Remember how dusty it was? Lex is startled by the Myasaur below them on 261, and in turn startles the animal too. And looking at the Myasaur, she thinks that it looks dumb, as if it were dumb. She didn't want to be in the tree, but she also doesn't want to enter the park any further. The dinosaurs have scared her very much on 262. Lex resumes complaining that she's hungry, remember? She missed dinner and then breakfast this morning, and she's surely legitimately very hungry. That said, they all likely are. Uh, But in her childish way, she's whining a lot. Lex reveals she cannot swim on page 263 and hopes that they can, quote, catch some fish while they're riding in this raft? That's what she wants to do. Sometimes kids just say stupid stuff. This isn't so crazy, but Crichton is making her about as obnoxious as possible, perhaps as she's getting hungrier, right? So she's getting cranky. She's hangry, is what they say. Uh, Lex is not comfortable with walking to the raft in front of the big Rex on 265, and in fact, she's pale with fear, we're told, and refuses to move, and one may say she is petrified, pun intended. Despite Lex's reservations, she is forced into the raft, and then childishly, inconceivably, she lets out a great loud sigh of relief, which is worrisome enough to wake the Tyrannosaur, but then finds that she must suppress a cough. Apparently, she always has to cough at the wrong times. Then she panics greatly and is apologetic as the Tyrannosaur swims up to them, and she panics and screams, basically just yelling everything that comes to her mind as the Big Rex snaps at them, and then when they get a stroke of fortune... It returns to the shore to protect its hadrosaur carcass, and she misinterprets their incredible stroke of luck as her getting the best of the tyrannosaur, and then she taunts it. (laughs) So, like, she has absolutely no concept of karma, and the mighty, mighty Bostones would have a lesson to teach her about knocking on wood. That's the impression that I get. Uh, So, she concedes that she'll listen to Grant next time he demands she do something, and her final observation is that there is a current pulling them north toward the hotel, which is good. Tim Murphy. Tim is covered in a layer of fine dust as well. Remember how dusty it was. When the Myasaur is startled, Tim urges Lex to not make it mad on 261. Tim chirps up that he spotted a raft in the maintenance building earlier and suggests that they use that to navigate through the park more quickly. And turns out he hadn't actually seen a raft, but for some reason assumed that there was a raft. Tim discovers a metal case with the compressed air pistol and cloth belt on 263, which is great because it arms Grant and the kids to defend themselves. And Tim appears to be the point of view character who observes that Lex always has to cough at the wrong times on 265. And to help her, he scoops some lagoon water to help relieve the tickle in her throat. I don't think anybody's going to drink that water, though. Dr. Alan Grant. We closed out the previous chapter with Grant closing his eyes tightly against all the dust in the air. And we open this chapter with his eyes still shut. So it's right afterwards. He hears a crackling and feels a warm wetness tickling his ankle before he reopens his eyes on page 260. And he finds that a duck bill is eating from the tree that they have climbed. He doesn't feel threatened and takes a moment to academically observe this animal discovering it behaves, quote, exactly like a cow. And that it's not threatening is that it's peaceful. And he feels a proprietary feeling about it. And he and Jack Horner 
the book tells us, were the first to describe this species of dinosaur, the Myasaura. Grant experiments with the animal's vision and sense of smell, realizing that they have short memories on page 261. He realizes through his experimentation and observation that the Myasaur cannot see them, and that discovery amazes him, and that they forget about them when they don't actually move is equally astonishing on 262. And Grant connects the dots with the Tyrannosaur, allowing it to reaffirm the, quote, classic example of an amphibian visual cortex on page 262. Remember our news stories. Grant is covered in a layer of fine dust on 262, just like the kids are. Grant checks his watch, but doesn't tell us what time it is. How long have they been up in that tree with their eyes closed? Now, because the motion sensors don't work just before the stampede, Grant has to conclude that they do not work at all, thanks to John Arnold. So his new plan is to march back through the entire park to warn everyone of the raptors on the ship. And Grant loves the idea of taking the raft instead of going over land. Now, Grant can't find the raft right away, but does find a set of schematics or plans in a cabinet on 263. Grant studies these plans for, quote, a long time, so we shall accept that he knows exactly where to go and what to do uh, by virtue of looking at these plans. Now, these aren't, quote, plans, but rather topographical charts for the main area of the island, where they are now. He makes a plan to get to the lagoon, discovers a service road that's, quote, below ground level, leading straight to the lagoon, leading to another dock where the raft is stored. And Tim gives Grant a tranquilizer gun, and he leads them down to the docks on 264. Reaching the dock, Grant must walk in full view of the big wrecks to the end of the dock to get the raft ready for the kids, hoping that the Tyrannosaur won't wake up. Lex is stubborn and really frustrates Grant, but he gets her into the raft, and they launch. He tries to stay in the center of the lagoon where it is deepest, and in a last-ditch effort, fires the dart gun into the Tyrannosaurus' cheek on 267. When the Big Rex leaves them to defend its carcass, Grant rows as hard as his body allows, collapsing in exhaustion, and falls asleep. Falls asleep again on 268. John Arnold is in this chapter. Arnold is now searching for Nedry's Jeep, uh, using the motion sensors on 262, or the cameras, flipping through the visual images two seconds at a time. Robert Muldoon. Muldoon insists on getting the weaponry out of Nedry's stolen jeep before entering the park with the Tyrannosaur on 262. Muldoon, in the meantime, has gone out to the sauropod paddock to investigate the results of that stampede. Donald Gennaro. Gennaro has accompanied Muldoon out to the sauropod paddock on 262. John Hammond uh, radios Arnold on 262, requesting that he join Hammond and Wu in the genetics lab for some reason. And Myasaura. This has gentle, soft eyes, a duck-like bill. Eyes protruding above the flat duck bill. It eats leaves from the branches of a tree and apparently can reach 20 feet up into the tree where, recall, Grant and the kids have stopped their climb. And it tickles uh, Grant's ankle, I think. It has large flat teeth in its cheeks and these act, quote, exactly like a cow on page 260. These were described by Jack Horner and in the mythology of this novel, also by Dr. Grant. And it is a late Cretaceous herbivore from Montana. It has an upcurved lip, giving it the appearance that it is smiling. Its name means Good Mother Lizard because they were thought to protect their eggs until the babies were born and could take care of themselves. There's also an infant Myasaur here, which squeaks. It's dark beige with black spots, and the mum feeds the baby. The mother is described as patient, while the infant eats out of the mum's mouth, kind of like birds do. The nostrils are elongated on the, on the flat upper bill. On page 261, behaviorally, when the animal is startled, it freezes completely. They trumpet with alarm, and the infant hides between the mother's legs when it's scared. And the Tyrannosaur returns in this chapter. Big Rex comes back on 263. She's chilling this time. And by chilling, I don't mean scary. She's just hanging out. She's sitting upright in the shade of a tree, its hind legs stretched out in front. And I need to see an artist's rendition of this moment. Her eyes are open, 
but she doesn't move except for her head, which rises and falls gently with each snorting sound. The constant buzzing is from a cloud of flies surrounding her, crawling over her face and bloody fangs. She is sleeping, sitting up, and I guess with her eyes open. All the flies bother Big Rex while she sleeps, and Crichton says she, quote, raised its forelimb to swipe at the flies buzzing around its snout on 265. It burps and dozes away, and it, quote, scratches behind its ear with its hind foot just like a dog on 266. When it awakens, it lumbers into the lagoon, swims like a crocodile, and snaps at the boat just missing on its first attempt on 267. Then Grant shoots it in the cheek with the Moro 709, and it hears the juvenile Rex at the shore creeping on her hadrosaur kill. Well, nuts to that, the big Rex goes back to defend its carcass, abandoning her attack on the raft. This behavior was described earlier in the novel, recall way back in episode 29, Big Rex, or on pages... 148 and 149, where Big Rex has killed the goat and appears cautious or worried that another Tyrannosaur may come and snatch it away from her. So the Tyrannosaurs don't really square off, but the juvenile is sufficiently scared away, and the Big Rex keeps its kill on 268. At least the juvenile got a sample of the carcass, so it's it's eaten a little bit after eating Regis. Hadrosaurs. The red haunch of a hadrosaur is dead beside Big Rex on 263, presumably also covered in, in a cloud of flies. Later, when the juvenile creeps over and sneaks some of that carcass, this is called the, quote, killed sauropod on 267, which would be incorrect. Hadrosaurs are not sauropods. The carcass is not of a sauropod. Localities. We have the sauropod paddock, where all of this takes place. Below, Grant and the kids in the largest tree they could find. Now, a new hadrosaur, the Myasaura, approaches them on, on page 260. So, this sauropod paddock has hadrosaurs, myasaurs, at least two triceratops, and a bunch of apatosaurs in it. It's pretty crowded in here, especially now that the tyrannosaur is hunting in it, too. Out of the tree, they notice that the grass has been trampled all around, and there is a sour scent and streaks of blood on 262. The maintenance building they spent the night in is only 20 yards from the tree that they are hiding in from the stampede. We learn that the juvenile tyrannosaur has returned from the main road, gone back into the tyrannosaur paddock, and crossed through the hole in the fence that enters into the sauropod paddock, too. So both tyrannosaurs are in the sauropod paddock now. And recall, this third cutout in the fence is the final cutout that hasn't been repaired by Muldoon's, by Muldoon's crew. The sauropod maintenance building number four. Tim says that he saw a raft in the maintenance building on page 262. There are deep, gloomy recesses in the building on 263. Though Grant could probably turn the lights on, we have power, and as of this moment, we have phones too. Grant doesn't know that, but they are up and working. He is discouraged because when he tried the, uh, the phones two hours ago at 5 a.m., they were out, so he, I guess, doesn't think that they've come on yet. In any case, the shed is full of stuff. There are multiple five-gallon containers of herbicide, tree pruning equipment, spare tires for a Jeep, coils of cyclone fencing, 100-pound fertilizer bags, stacks of brown ceramic insulators. Recall, these weren't used on the fence by the Hipsy Paddock, which caused the cutouts in episode 45 of the park, which Harding and Muldoon had to replace on 249. <laughs> Empty motor oil cans are in here, work lights and cables. There are bags of cement, lengths of copper pipe, green mesh, oars for a boat, schematics covered in lichen or mold in a metal cabinet on the wall, and a raft all wrapped up on page 263. Then there's a below-ground road. This has embankment walls on either side and spans from the maintenance shed to the dock at the lagoon on page 263. While walking along this road, kind of underground, snorting can be heard, becoming louder, which becomes a droning and then a constant buzzing, which I think is the flies. So they can hear that as they, uh, they walk below ground on this road. 
the dock. Uh, this is a concrete dock on 263, and it is connected to the sauropod maintenance shed by a, a below-ground road, which we were just talking about. The Tyrannosaur is propped up against a tree only 20 yards from the dock. Recall, this is three strides for a Tyrannosaur to walk. A wooden shed painted green to resemble the surrounding foliage is at the end of the dock with a latch on the door. Inside are a half dozen orange life vests hanging on the wall, several rolls of wire mesh, fencing, so much fencing, some coils of rope, and two big rubber cubes on the floor. And the cubes are strapped tight with rubber belts. And the lagoon. It's 100 feet wide at this particular spot on 267 and apparently it is deepest at the center and becomes more shallow towards the shore i don't know why but that's how they built it maybe to conserve water so it, it's great gradually uh, becomes deeper as you go to the center it's possible that it doesn't matter a lick how deep jurassic park built the lagoons it wasn't going to be too deep for the dinosaurs to cross anyhow so you know making it deep doesn't it doesn't affect them going in and out of the water i guess uh we did learn earlier that it is stocked with fish we're not told what kind of fish, so we don't know if it's freshwater or saltwater, but it's probably freshwater. Exiting north out of the lagoon, there is a current pulling the raft on 268, which is specifically addressed. It's carrying them toward the hotel, so this is a good thing. For a current to be pulling them north, it must indicate that they are flowing downhill towards a larger body of water or out into the ocean. And in any case, this must indicate that they are topographically descending in altitude by the nature of how water flow works. Even though they're heading north towards the visitor center, which we are basically told is in the mountains of the northern part of the island earlier. All right, allusions and references. We have Morrow 709. We won't find, we won't have this out until much later, but Morrow 709 is a standard animal tranquilizer, according to Muldoon on 289. I can't find any further reference to specifically what MORO is abbreviated to mean, but that said, there is also a MORO 12, which is an inhalation nerve gas weaponized as grenades that look like spheres later on in the novel. Jack and the Beanstalk. Okay, you, you you let me know if I'm wildly out of line on this part. As Grant and the kids are sneaking past a sleeping Tyrannosaurus in this chapter, looking to get onto the raft, does this not remind you a whole lot of Jack and the Beanstalk? Like the tale of Jack and the Beanstalk, Jack has to sneak past the sleeping giant with his treasures under his arm. Now I think he has a goose that lays the golden eggs, and there might be a harp of some sort. So he's got these things he's got to sneak by. And then Big Rex in this reference is the giant. It, it, quote, grunted and snorted on page 265. It shifts its ponderous bulk and it settles back against a tree trunk with a, quote, long growling belch. It burps. <laughs> and when it wakes up, it, quote, yawned lazily and scratched behind its ear with its hind foot just like a dog. It yawned again. It was groggy after its big meal and it woke up slowly. We're told on 266. It stumbles to its feet because it's clumsy and tired for now. And I think the sleeping wrecks that burps and swats at flies while it's sleeping in this, let's be totally clear, in this absolutely ridiculous position sitting up against a tree, this is comical, right? This is childish. It's kids' TV programming. And Grant is sneaking by with his dart gun trying to get Lex and Tim aboard a raft so that they can get down the river. And Lex is, though they don't mention it, creeping by, and she's carrying her baseball glove, and Tim is still toting along the night vision goggles, and they tiptoe like they're characters in Looney Tunes or something like that. So this whole scene just reminds me of, like, yeah, a children's story. Stylistic techniques, we have italics. Hey, what's that on 261? is another example of Lex emphasizing what she sees. Obviously a character who speaks with great emphasis and emotion because she is a child. Forget it, I'm not staying here. On 261 again, resists Lex, as opposed to not wishing to remain in the tree really badly. More characteristic emphasis from this youngster. I'm not walking out there anymore, on 262, insists Lex. Again, emphasis showing her frustrating stubbornness and childishness. The Tyrannosaur was right. 
there on 263. And here the italics emphasize incredible emotion, astonishment, surprise, fear, terror, and you name it. Uh, they're feeling it really strongly because there are italics. Grant nodded, yes, in italics on 265. As the italics here demonstrate perhaps the exaggerated motions one might make to be understood whilst being silent. So that's kind of fun. She always coughed at the wrong times, exclamation mark, on 265. Appears to be Tim's observation with a history between them where she's frustrated him with this quirk before. The always suggests that she's innocent of any wrongdoing. This is just something that happens. Lex, shut up! <laughs> On 266, he's just saying what we're all thinking. But seriously, desperate times have led to decorum and civility to lose priority. Tim isn't being mean here. He's desperate. And the italics, the exclamation mark, the uncouth language toward his sister, it all adds up to they need her to listen now. <laughs> Be quiet. And there's lots of italics in these desperate moments, especially as Tim calls his sister an idiot quite a bit. Most notably, there's a concept that apparently it is obvious that all reptiles, snakes, and tyrannosaurus can swim, swim quite well. And you're an idiot if you don't know that. Uh, do you feel like an idiot? I don't subscribe to that perspective. You're welcome to not know things so long as you never stop learning, right? Um, what are you doing on 267? Screams Lex, uncertain why Grant is swinging the boat around, heading towards the Tyrannosaur. Again, she may be the most italicized and exclamatory character, which says something on a greater level. She's, for all intents and purposes, the least mature character, and thus via Crichton's deployment of his characters, the one least in control of her emotions. The more italics and exclamations a character uses, the more perhaps we should read them as being less mature, or behaving immaturely anyhow. From now on, will you do what I tell you? Asks Grant, and Lex responds, okay, in the most tone-deaf moment of the novel, as if she didn't just almost get them all eaten by not listening. And to be more tone-deaf than Hammond in this novel is saying something. That's Lex. Collins. The reason Grant was astonished was that he had a proprietary feeling about this animal, colon. It was probably a myosaur from the late Cretaceous in Montana, on page 160. So this colon or sentence doesn't work very well. The colon is supposed to present an explanation, in this case, why he feels a proprietary feeling about the myosaur. But the, quote, explanation doesn't do that. So this isn't done well. It should say that he was one of the first to describe this species, but it doesn't do that. Instead, it says that they're from the late Cretaceous of Montana, which is not a reason Grant should feel a proprietary feeling about the animal, is it? Quote, it took him a moment to realize, colon, the Tyrannosaur was asleep on 263. The introduction of a realization is presented before the colon, which then states the realization. So perhaps not my favorite use of a colon in the novel so far, but it works just fine. She mouthed, colon, no boat, in italics, on 265. As this colon presents what Lex is mouthing, which is no boat, and that's stated in italics because she must be especially animated or insistent that she will not walk into the open in front of the Tyrannosaur to climb into this raft. Her body shook with muffled sounds, colon. She was suppressing a cough on 265. Here the colon introduces a behavior and then explains what is causing that behavior. He knew what that meant, colon, a tickle in her throat on 265, is the same setup again. Lex pointing at her throat silently is explained post-colon. She has a tickle in her throat. Semicolons. Not that he was afraid. Semicolon. All the species of duckbill dinosaurs were herbivorous, and this one acted exactly like a cow on 260. Uh, this sticks two ideas together, stating a fact and then elaborating on why. The name meant good mother lizard. Semicolon. Myosaurs were thought to protect their eggs until the babies were born and could take care of themselves on 260. No problem here. I think it could have equally been a full colon as well as a semicolon. Lex came silently, and he gestured for her to get into the raft semicolon. Then Tim got in, and they both put on their life vests on 265. Shows two people doing the same thing, but the semicolon indicates 
they're of entirely different headspaces as they do the same thing, and they're made separate very clearly, I guess. Rhetorical questions. Well, is it going to let us down or what? On 261, says Lex, demonstrating some of that youthful attitude she's going to embody going forward as they escape the sauropod paddock. Ellipses. We've uh, we got, quote, bags of cement, lengths of copper pipe, green mesh, ellipsis, and then two plastic oars hung on clips on the concrete wall. On 263, uh, where the ellipsis is Grant skipping over a bunch of stuff. There is more all around, but it's not what he's looking at or what he's looking for, which is the raft. So he skips these items. Uh, this is interesting because literally, literarily, an ellipsis is good for omitting text that you skip because it's irrelevant to the pieces of a quote that you'd like to cite. And here it's the same thing, except instead of a sentence being omitted, it's junk laying around in the shed. Uh, this is like form and style coming together in perfect harmony. Perhaps the most arti artistically successful use of an ellipsis in this whole novel. So it's really cool. I'm hungry with an ellipsis on 263, wind by Lex, which is not the greatest ellipsis of all time. Here, the ellipsis is open-ended, inviting anybody who can hear her to do something about her being hungry. Passive, aggressive, obnoxious, quintessentially Lex. According to this, the lagoon narrowed into the river they had seen earlier, which twisted northward, ellipsis, right through the aviary, ellipsis, and onto within a half mile of the visitor lodge on 263. Here the ellipses serve like parentheses, offering a conspicuous emphasis on the aviary, as if we as readers should take note that they'll be going through the aviary and that might be a location of interest when we get there. Hint, hint, it might be. M-dash. Then Grant realized the animal wasn't swimming, but was walking, because moments later only the very top of the head, M-dash, the eyes and nostrils, M-dash, protruded above the surface. On page 266, and these M-dashes serve as parentheses, so the explanation that the eyes and nostrils are protruding above the surface is to be read simultaneously with the rest of the sentence. Grant looked at the paddles in his hands, but they were light plastic. M-dash, not weapons at all. On 267, where the M-dash here serves as an informal semicolon. He saw bubbles, M-dash, then a faint ripple along the surface, M-dash, coming towards the boat, M-dash. On 267 again, here, the M-dashes should serve as an interruption, so each new observation is interrupting the preceding observation. Perhaps this should be read as an escalating situation, which, which indication of a predating tyrannosaur approaching your boat is an escalation, if I ever heard of one, so this probably works out. It looked pitifully small in his hands but there was the chance that if he shot the animal in a sensitive spot, in the eye or the nose, M-dash, on 267, but the Tyrannosaur resurfaces and interrupts his feeble anti-Tyrannosaur planning. The response was immediate, M-dash. It turned back to protect its kill, swimming strongly toward the shore, on 267-268. Here the M-dash sort of serves as a semicolon, but in a less formal measure. What makes this a less formal moment? Well, I guess it's more exciting, it's moving more quickly, so Crichton employs the M-dash rather than the semicolon because it's less formal, faster paced, and more of a response than an explanation. Exclamations. I couldn't help it, Timmy! Exclamation mark on 266. Now they're literally sitting ducks on a pond as the Tyrannosaur comes towards them and the kids are just screaming at each other and the exclamations accentuate their desperation. Effectively. I couldn't help it! Exclamation mark. Of course you can swim, you little idiot! Exclamation mark. Of course snakes can, you idiot! 
exclamation mark. Everybody knows Tyrannosaurus can swim, exclamation mark. It's in all the books, exclamation mark. Anyway, all the all reptiles can swim, exclamation mark. Grant wants them to settle down, but he's using ex- exclamations too. Hold on to something, and hang on, exclamation mark. But they exclaim way more. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dr. Grant, exclamation. I didn't mean it, exclamation on 267. Do something, do something, Lexus wailing, screaming for her life. And Grayton calls her Alexis for a brief moment in here. She's only called Alexis three times as far as I can tell in this novel. The first two are when she and Tim were first introduced on the tour and now. I wonder why Crichton slipped it in here at this moment. He's going away on 268 with an exclamation uh, said by Lex twice. And then she taunts it and calls it a stupid dinosaur with an exclamation mark. There you go. Capitalization. And clearly stenciled on the dock was raft storage in all capitals on 263, which is a label and how we would know if it were a label because it is capitalized. For some reason, that is a motif that Creighton sticks to through this entire novel. Parallelism. She mouthed, no boat. He nodded, yes. Pale with fear, Lex waved back, no. He gestured, colon, yes, <laughs> on 265. These are all the same setup, and so this sort of represents parallelism. These are all sentences constructed with the same mechanics, simplified way down into their core messaging because it's frankly all being pantomimed and delivered silently because they don't want to wake up the Tyrannosaur, right? It's a simple back and forth, and it's really frustrating to read, but it's, uh, it's parallelism done well. Literary techniques, we have metaphors. Grant stabbed in the air with an emphatic finger on 265, using violent imagery, imbuing gravity and consequence into Grant's movements. It adds menace and perhaps aggravation, and it's compelling enough that Lex complies and overcomes her fear to obey Grant. So stabbing with his finger, metaphorically, uh, the stabbing created an image strong enough that Lex complies. And suddenly they heard an answering roar floating across the water toward them on 267, where... The roar doesn't fill the air or shake them to their core. It's just another roar coming across the water, which is a good way to describe the smaller, more diminutive juvenile tyrannosaur, which catches Big Rex's attention. Simile. A faint crackling sound like a fire in a fireplace on 260 begins this chapter. We can imagine that sound, and out of context, it's intriguing and confusing, drawing us on to read more. The eyes protruding above the flat duckbill were gentle and soft like a cow's. On 260, and perhaps a cow's eye isn't a great simile if Crichton has to elaborate on the simile, further describing it as gentle and soft to make his point. Do you know a cow's eye to be gentle and soft? To me, they're big, dark, and vacant of expression or emotion, but that's me, not a rancher, not a cowboy, or even from anywhere you described as the West. So I don't rank this as a strong simile, and I continue to not like that Crichton relies heavily on big mammals for his dinosaur analogies. And this one acted exactly like a cow on 260, which is to suggest that Grant feels no more in danger with this animal than he would with a barnyard cow. Once again, I dislike the cow analogies, but there they are. He sounded like the voice of God on 262 is how Crichton describes the ominous voice of Hammond when Arnold hears it over the radio. This suggests there's a gravity, a power behind his voice, that the commands that are forthcoming are decreed from on top. In Tim's ears, the sound echoed across the water like a gunshot, on 266. And this is great. I think we can imagine the echo of a gunshot across a big open space. And so this is a good simile. And it's qualified that this is in the moment at its heightened sensitivity that Tim feels as if this were as loud as a gunshot, whereas it wasn't actually as loud as a gunshot. The Tyrannosaur yawned lazily and scratched behind its ear with its hind foot 
just like a dog on 266. In this simile, we can imagine a dog scratching behind its ear easily. But can we imagine a tyrannosaur sitting upright under a tree doing this? I mean, a dog does this laying down or propping itself up with its forelegs while it scrubs away behind its ear. This is a strange example for Crichton to use. This isn't a great simile, I don't think. <sighs> By then it looked like a crocodile, and it swam like a crocodile, swinging its big tail back and forth so the water churned behind it. On 266, we can imagine a crocodile paddling along by its churning tail easily enough, so this is a strong simile, and exactly like a crocodile is what Grant thinks. All right, uh, in our discussion section here, let's talk a bit more about the dinosaurs. So the dinosaurs are kind of named in an unspecific way in the novel. Some are stegosaurus, but also stegosaurs. Now, there is a distinction. One is specifically the titular stegosaurus, our favorite dinosaur, but stegosaurs describes a family of animals that are closely related to stegosaurus, including stegosaurs. Stegosaurinae, the most stegosaurus-like family, includes dinosaurs like Wurrosaurus and Yingshanosaurus from China, and then a little more distantly related are the stegosauridae, with a D, which includes the Chengdusaurus, and uh, what else is popular here? Kentrosaurus, Hesperosaurus, Lexovasaurus, Loricatosaurus. Uh, there are others. And then there are simply Stegosauria, which are from an even larger, more distantly related family, which includes Decentrurus, Chunkingosaurus, there's a Hyangosaurus, um, Gigantospinosaurus. All of these animals are considered, steg considered Stegosaurs, generally speaking, and they're in the Stegosauria family. So, I use stegosaurs as the example to elaborate. When Crichton calls many of the animals in Jurassic Park hadrosaurs, he is referring to an incredibly large family of duckbill animals. Hadrosauroidea, or the family of dinosaurs which are shaped like hadrosaurs, is massive. Hadrosaurus itself is a fairly banal, very old discovery of a crestless duckbill from New Jersey, about 20 feet long from the late Cretaceous. Hadrosaurs, generally speaking, just like the general stegosaurs, refers to every duckbill ever described. What makes this more confusing to the reader is that Crichton describes the myosaur in this chapter as a hadrosaur. Specifically, the infant is, quote, the baby hadrosaur scampering around the feet of the adult on page 260. So, like, he's not incorrect. If you just had a stampede of hadrosaurus, understanding that they were hadrosauruses, of which there are 11 in Jurassic Park, then to describe a new animal, the Myasaura, of which we're told they are breeding and there are 22 in the park, it gets confusing when you call it a Hadrosaur as well. You might interpret the Hadrosaurs from the stampede earlier as possibly also having been Myasaurs, and that's what we're seeing now. Now, I resist the idea that the stampede were Myasaurs because we're given new unique descriptions of this animal than we ever did during the stampede. They weren't called beige, the infants or juveniles weren't described as dark beige with black spots, and we never got the upturned bill resembling a smile. These new descriptions, while not ultimately conclusive, I admit, uh, encourage the idea that this is a distinctively new type of hadrosaur, the myosaura, that's found them at the tree compared to the earlier stampeding hadrosaurs, which are probably the hadrosaurus. As well, Grant in this chapter likens the similarities between the Myasaura and the Tyrannosaurus and concludes that the, quote, classic amphibian visual cortex, therefore, explains why unmoving animals cannot be spotted by a dinosaur on 262. So I, my only matter there was that hadrosaurs could mean Myasaurs and hadrosauruses. It can be confusing. My next issue, all the flies bother Big Rex while she sleeps. And Crichton says she, quote, raised 
its forelimb to swipe at the flies buzzing around its snout on 265. Big Rex may have raised her forearm to do this, but it wouldn't have got anywhere close to the tip of its snout. Not by a wide margin. In fact, I would be shocked if a Tyrannosaur would even instinctually do this because at no point in her entire life would this have ever resulted in actually touching her snout. Her arms are far too short and her face is too big and too far away from her forearms. Her fingers just don't reach that far. You know how small a Tyrannosaur's arms are. Like, if she were slouched up against a tree and her snout were pointing straight down onto her front, I still don't think her arms could have reached her snout. Now, this is sort of a thoughtless inclusion from Crichton, right? And you can email me if you think I'm totally wrong, but going along with other dinosaur mistakes, the hadrosaur carcass the big rex leaves behind at the tree and is infringed upon by the juvenile rex is called a the killed sauropod by Crichton on 267. To be clear, the sauropods are the apatosaurs, the long-necked Sarician super herbivores, whereas the hadrosaurs are the duck-billed ornithischian 20-footers. They are distinctly different, and it begs the question, perhaps Crichton didn't know the difference, or perhaps he got confused with what a Sarician, a lizard-hip dinosaur, and an ornithischian, a bird-hip dinosaur, are. I don't know. In any case, when he says that there is a sauropod carcass, he must mean the hadrosaur carcass, and that's his mistake. Timeline. As of page 262, it is now 7 a.m. This means in the time since Grant exited the sauropod maintenance building at 5 a.m., recall, they visited with the triceratops, spotted two dragonflies, walked to the motion sensor, got caught in a stampede, and then hid in a tree with their eyes shut because of all the dust. And now it is 7 a.m. Were they up in this tree for like two hours or an hour and a half? Like Tim says, they only walked 20 yards. Surely they walked further, but had to maybe double back toward the maintenance building for safety. But like in two hours, they have not made much progress. And it's very strange that he was up in this tree with his eyes shut, covered in dust for, for a very long time. We're told on page 268 after the Big Rex attack that it is 7.15 a.m. Tension. Here Crichton works on incorporating tension as they are sneaking past the Tyrannosaur. But it's kind of comical, like a little childish, but it's still very serious. Like, they could be eaten at any moment. And while Crichton soaks Grant in sweat from the tension and presents Lex as pale with fear, he struggles to find a good balance of terror with this goofy scene of the Tyrannosaur sleeping. It belches, and Lex waves her hand in front of her face as if to indicate how stinky she finds the belch. This is childish. And the whole show-don't-tell thing is a bit of a struggle here. Yes, there's plenty of tension, and Crichton is drawing it out, but he's also typing it out. Quote, Grant was soaked in sweat from the tension, on page 265. In earlier chapters, he'd perhaps describe his character as soaked in sweat and let that represent the tension for itself, but not in this moment. Now he's saying he's soaked in sweat with tension. But the loud noises, the flopping of the raft, plopping into the lagoon adds to the tension. Might this wake up the Tyrannosaur? It's good. Up until Lex has to sneeze, again, this is out of Looney Tunes, she always does this, even though she hasn't done it this entire trip so far. The janky writing here is one of two things. Crichton was having an off day and didn't care to edit this, edit this or I think more likely he really struggled to write Lex well. Lex is sort of detested by the fans of... The by fans of this novel, and I wonder if it's less to do with her being an obnoxious complainer through the whole novel, or more because she sticks out as obviously as the singular character that Crichton appeared to fail at characterizing with any effectiveness. She may as well have been an infant, a crying baby, or perhaps a scrappy little dog that, yeah, you care for, but isn't especially well characterized, and is noisy and selfish in ways that jeopardize the story. That's kind of what Lex is. It's crazy like that. Feminism. 
and maybe this isn't especially profound in terms of, of feminist reading, but like to observe and conclude that Rhett Crichton has really turned this little girl into a lousy plot device rather than a character is problematic only in so much as he hasn't totally failed at other male characters too. Quote, she always coughed at the wrong times on 265. It appears to be Tim's observation with a history between the two of them where she's frustrated him with this quirk before. The always suggests that she's innocent of any wrongdoing by this. Uh, but by this example, being obnoxious isn't a character flaw. It's either because of her age or her gender, or possibly both. Little girls are obnoxious, and they can't help it. Might be how one would read how Crichton has put this together. All right, we have some contrivances and plot. Recall, Grant reiterates his mission to the kids. They must warn everyone of the raptors on the ship. And we don't forget this because Grant brings it up. So we remember. The contrivance here is the mission to count all the eggs, an estimate if dinosaurs have escaped the island, which is also still on the table, is not mentioned. And we're continuing to forget all about that. So when Grant pins Gennaro up against the wall and yells about shirking his responsibilities unless they go climb through a raptor nest, it's going to come out of left field. And it doesn't necessarily have to. It's just the way that Crichton has let that plot point slip for the entirety of the novel. Next, and this is a big one, Hammond calls Arnold away from the monitors to join him and Dr. Wu in the genetics lab. Hammond sounds like, quote, the voice of God to Arnold, and he cannot be denied. Arnold leaves his station, quits studying the video monitors, and by so doing is AWOL when Grant and the kids cross the field and draw the attention of the Tyrannosaur, which Arnold would have totally noticed had he still been watching the monitors. This isn't so bad, you say? It's plausible? Sure. Except whatever the heck Hammond and Wu needed Arnold for in the genetics lab isn't mentioned. Like, is whatever that was more important than Muldoon getting his armaments back? Like, it's left and said. There is no record of any kind as to what Hammond and Wu and, and Arnold were off doing in this moment that was more important. There's literally no explanation. This is entirely here so that Arnold is away from the video monitors so that they can't find Grant and the kids, even though the park is back up and running. The motion sensors are now working, and they should be able to find them in seconds with the animal count. Oh, and by the way, there's been absolutely no mention that Control has even been looking for Grant and the kids, and Gennaro's phone call to the mainland to get a doctor for Malcolm? Yeah, they forgot about that too, because of the stampede, I guess. This is not bad writing, but obviously Crichton is relying heavily on contrivances of plot in his story to keep the adventure alive for us readers. And I guess we say thank you? Like, even great stories can be imperfect. But don't let anybody tell you that the plot is especially strong. It's being held together with tape and thumbtacks, right? <sighs> Plotting the book, Tim finds Grant a compressed air pistol, which, spoiler alert, he's going to use to capture a raptor in the tunnel behind the waterfalls. They're going to take the captured infant raptor back with them, and it's going to be essential to help them help the team locate the raptor nest at the end of the novel. So this is Crichton laying the groundwork to bring us back to that janky raptor nest scene at the end of the novel that sticks out like a sore thumb. Once again, Crichton is thinking about closing the closing scene and working on that closing scene in this moment, but he says nothing about it. This is a problem for us as readers because when we get to that moment at the end, it's going to feel ridiculous because the novel lacks the connective tissues that keep that egg-counting mission introduced back on 168 fresh in our minds. Almost 100 pages ago, specifically like 95 pages to this moment, there's not been any mention of that egg-counting mission since it was first brought up, and a lot has happened since then, making it very forgettable. If we can see that Crichton is plotting the end of the novel at this moment, it's just too bad he didn't also include some further mention in some way throughout Grant's escape from the park to keep it fresh in our minds too. 
The God Complex. In this chapter, we finally get a direct allusion to Hammond as God on this island, even though we've had plenty of examples. This time it's most greatly affirmed by the simile, he sounded like the voice of God on 262. All the reading into the God complex of John Hammond is encouraged by this simile. And so we gather our evidence and collect it to review upon the completion of our reading. And we'll see what Crichton is telling us in the end. But all of the the times I've mentioned the God complex is because of this simile here. He sounded like the voice of God. Crichton tropes while Grant is looking for the raft. He looks in a metal cabinet to find some park plans on 263. He brushes away a, quote, big spider, we're told, and I feel like this was a crichton moment missed. Obviously, just like the dragonflies earlier, this should have been a six-foot spider from the Jurassic. What gives? <laughs> Makes just as much sense as everything else that's happened in the last few pages. Island layout. The maintenance building they spend the night in is only 20 yards away, or three Tyrannosaurus strides, if that's your preferred unit of measure from the tree that they were hiding in from the stampede. They've literally only walked 20 yards this entire morning before spotting two monstrously large dragonflies and getting caught up in the hadrosaur stampede, tyrannosaur attack, and visit from a mother and daughter pair of myosaurs. They've only gone 20 yards! Grant estimates that they have another 8 miles to venture to make it back to the visitor area on page 262, and we should take his word for it. I believe that's true. Also, another neat perspective on the island road system. We learn in this chapter that many of the service roads are below ground level on 263. It's not visible above ground level. So when you're imagining service people navigating through the park, they're oftentimes going to be down in these narrow little service roads. I don't know why these would be a good idea. You'd have a hell of a time changing a tire in them. They probably flood during heavy storms. Dinosaurs could sprain their ankles falling into them for whatever reason, but they do allow Grant and the kids to believably move from the sauropod maintenance building to the lagoon dock without being picked up by the motion sensors, right? Furthermore, we get a topographical map of the island which describes more details for us. The sauropod paddock is at, quote, main area of the island until 263. The lagoon narrows into the river and it, quote, twisted northward through the aviary, taking them to within a half mile of the visitor lodge. So you can expect these will be their next stops during the next few chapters. So if this takes them to within a half mile of the visitor center and we were told they were about eight miles out, then the river will take them seven and a half miles whatever that means to you. And we have to make some dramatic revisions to our interpretation of Isla Nublar because we have two things that can't be true without a significant re-envisioning. We're given in this chapter that the river flows up to the north, out of the lagoon, and terminates in a waterfall. We know the island is at its highest point in the north, which we categorized as mountainous due to its elevation, where the helipad is located. Recall there is an air alpine forest up there too. It is high. And recall too that the visitor area is high enough that the control room's big window overlooks the entire park, and that there are little waterfalls like Japanese peace gardens flowing down and away from the pools and the tennis courts. In other words, the north end, the visitor's area, is at a high elevation. The lagoon is in the main area, the center of the park, as described by the topographical map that Grant reads, and they're going to navigate the river to the north. For the river to both flow north and not go uphill, we must revise our island layout. The northern sector of the, is mountainous and high. The western side of the island, which the tour departed along, has high bluffs. Recall Le Gigantes, the fine dining restaurant was up in the bluffs, but incomplete. And the lagoon is in the island's center or main part. So perhaps the northern and the western parts of the island are much higher altitudes than the rest of the island. And that its center is somewhat moderate and the Jungle River floors north, possibly ebbing towards the eastern side of the island. And we know both the east dock and the north dock are situated on the eastern side of the island. Thus, 
The eastern side of the island is accessible at water level, or put differently, this is the lowest part of the island. Thus, the river can flow from a moderate height in the center of the island downwards along the eastern side, heading down to an altitude of sea level, and pouring down a waterfall before reaching the sea level where the docks are. This won't explain why the waterfall is electric, and how it suddenly shuts off when the power goes out, nor how the Tyrannosaur gets down there to wait for them, but the island continues to reveal its interesting and entertaining shape to us. It will make a very interesting diagram of this island one day. We'll see. <laughs> Alright, I want to sign off today thanking Gavin Bradley for coming on the show. Gavin, thank you so much for agreeing to get involved in this podcast. It was great to meet you, and I'm definitely going to look into that Dino 101 online course. I've got my I've got room on a refrigerator for a certificate, so that'll work out for me. Um, and I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Parkcast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. You can find all that baggage in my show notes, or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com, or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Capers or me, I'm on Twitter at RogersRyan22. Thank you dearly for tuning in to the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park. And also not that too. Until next time.